ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Before we begin today's podcast, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of our city and region. We are on the road once more today with Studio 19 squeezing into Studio 4A at the headquarters of IPA ACT here in Barton ACT. Drew Baker, the head of IPA, has gone full Steven Spielberg on me and created his own high-definition television studio. And with the help of Work With Purpose's technical director, Ben Curry, they have put together a very tidy little narrowcasting operation here in Barton. I'm sure in the years to come, it is going to be the home of a lot of great content. And if you are listening and you need to build your own studio, which, by the way, all of you in the future will need, just as organisations like the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Border Force have known for many years, but I'm sure that Drew and Ben would be happy to share their experience with you. So, to our guests today, Rhys Kershaw is the Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police. He began his career in the AFP in the late 80s, serving in a variety of positions in Canberra, Western Australia and Victoria. During his career, Commissioner Kershaw has been seconded to numerous positions outside the AFP, including the National Crime Authority, the the Australian Crime Commission, as well as postings to The Hague, East Timor and the Solomon Islands. Prior to being appointed as the Commissioner of the AFP, he was the head of the Northern Territory Police Force for five years, during a time that it has to be said must have been particularly challenging, being involved in a number of inquiries and trials into his own force. Known for his scrupulous integrity, he was sworn in as AFP Commissioner in October of last year. Rhys Kershaw, welcome to Work With Purpose. Also joining us today is Michael Outram, the Commissioner of the Australian Border Force, the law enforcement agency responsible for offshore and onshore border control, enforcement, investigations, compliance and detentions. Commissioner Outram began his policing career on the streets of London, spending 20 years in the ranks of the Metropolitan Policing Service, rising to Detective Chief Inspector, serving in anti-corruption, anti-terrorism and major investigation teams. He was seconded to the New South Wales Police Force, working on the Independent Commission Against Corruption, he liked the weather and he decided to stay. Since then, he has served in numerous high-profile crime-fighting roles with both the Australian Crime Commission, the AFP, before joining the ABF in 2015. He was sworn in as Commissioner in 2018. And like Rhys Kershaw, Michael Outram is also known for his integrity. Commissioner Outram, welcome to Work With Purpose. Rhys Kershaw, if I might start with you. Last week we spoke with General Angus Campbell and Greg Moriarty and I asked him how he felt when his phone rang and it was Greg's name. And he came up with an answer, something along the lines that in 
when you're in charge of a big organisation, you never quite have the control that you would like and things can and and do go wrong. Uh, I noticed a few weeks ago that you had that sort of moment when I'm sure your phone rang to tell you that a number of your recruits had breached social distancing protocols at a, a party at the AFP college. And I'm sure with all the concerns and stresses and pressures that you're under at the moment that it was the last thing that you needed. And by the way, I loved your answer uh, before the committee up at Parliament where you said that they'd been suitably caned for their stupidity. But is that the hardest part of your job, getting everyone to understand the standards, understand their responsibilities and, and being accountable to those? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, the challenge is, is to enforce the values. And for us, we are a representative of the community we serve, and we also have the same values as the community. So it was disappointing that we breached the social distancing you know, uh, guidelines and enforcement uh, that was in place in the ACT. And the, and the recruits, I think, have learnt. Uh, not only did they have to uh, be internally investigated, which is a, can be quite a harrowing procedure. Um, they actually had to answer to me separately, and I asked them two questions, and that is, uh, do you think you're above the law? And the second question was, uh, what are you going to do to fix it? And what were the answers? It was did quite good because what I was looking for was separate to the disciplinary process was just to see what the thinking was from each recruit independent of the process. And so I was able to sort of gain an understanding of where they're at. They all agreed they were not above the law and that they collectively could have done, some of them said, yes, whilst I wasn't involved, I should have probably taken some action and, and so on. So it was about just reinforcing the values of the organisation and also what the community expects from us. And Michael Altrim, what about you? Well, you know, How do you try to build that consistency and, and holding up to, to the very high standards of the ABF? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, area for us. We're not as um, mature as the AFP. We're only five years young as an organisation. And, of course, we've brought together a number of people from former customs organisation, immigration, former police officers like myself, former defence and public servants. So it's interesting to galvanise everybody into a, a culture that's coherent where our uh, values are well understood and well practised. I'd have to say through COVID-19... Um, a lot of that came to the fore. You, don't, you actually don't know as the head of an organisation quite how prepared you are in crisis and how the organisation is going to react. So everyone reacted really well there. But in terms of integrity, I still think we've got some way to go as an organisation to get people to understand that as a, as a law enforcement official, and some, of course some of my officers were previously public servants, when you wear this uniform, you automatically create an expectation on the part of the community that you will adhere to a standard of behaviour and conduct, not just when you're at work, but also in your life. Because you have access to coercive powers that you use and people want to be sure and confident that you're going to use them fairly and proportionately and be accountable for them. So I'd say we're doing well as an organisation, but we still have some way to go to galvanise that. And that comes through our standard operating procedures, our training, and the way that we actually reward and recognise good performance and the way we deal with underperformance. And what about you, though, as a, as a leader? What do, what do you see as your responsibility in building out that culture? Well, it's about leading by example. People, you know, Every organisation I've worked in, David, has in a way resembled the persona and the behaviour of its CEO, whether it was in the Metropolitan Police organisation of you know 40,000 people or a smaller organisation like the Australian Crime Commission. The behaviours and actions and the conduct of the person leading the organisation sets very much the scene for the conduct within the organisation. And so the way I behave, I, I actually have to be very careful 
about the way I behave. Like any leader, I've got attributes of my personality that I try and keep behind the scenes. Um, you know, and, there's, and, and I'm aware of those, and you have to deal with that as a leader, particularly when you're under stress. And you have to be always conscious that people are reading your every movement, your body language, the way you speak, the way you behave, the way you deal with things behind the scenes. And so my office, for example, they pour over all of my emails, all, all of my you know, expenses, all of those things to make sure everything's absolutely above board. And then I set a really good example. Okay, so this series to date has focused on how our government agencies have responded to the challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic. Both of you are at the the very sharp end of it. Your people are very close to the people. And Rhys Kershaw, if I might ask you first, how have Australians responded, in your view, to the challenge of, of the pandemic? I'm really proud of how Australians have responded. Um, I think that uh, we've shown global leadership uh, like no other country. Um, I think that we, uh, you know, it, it was great to see that we united. All the, the, the politics was left, left aside and we're united as a country. And that's, that's the great thing about living in this country, that we probably underestimate that we're closer than what we realise when it comes to dealing with crisis. Australia is pretty well experienced and... You know, for me, it was really good to see, yes, you have some members of the society that break the rules and so on. That's probably the larrikin coming out in, in the Australian um, sort of persona. But overall, very happy with how um, Aussies have responded. And, you know, speaking to the other police commissioners, uh, they probably say similar. And Michael, your views on, on how the Australians have responded, what you've seen? Remarkable. I, I'd say that we deal with not only the travelling um, public, so people at airports, they want seamless, fast, get straight through. And of course, in a, in a pandemic, that's not possible. The patience that's been demonstrated towards my officers has been you know, exemplary, really, um, I've got to say. So people have accepted the restrictions on their ordinary lives, but not only the, the public, but also industry. You can imagine, again, behind the scenes in COVID-19, the amount of cargo vessels coming into our ports, the issues that that creates around our seaports and, and for workers. So industry has been remarkable too and very patient with us um, and very open to uh, discussions about how those restrictions will play out in their environment. So I've got to say, like, like Reese, very proud of Australia. And when you look at where we stand geographically, in, in proximity to the, where the outbreak started compared to some of our similar countries in the world, and where we are now, I think that the actions of Australians in those first few weeks are what, are what really has got us to where we are today. Mm. Now, interestingly, in, in one of the earlier answers, you spoke about the pride that you had in your organisation, a young organisation, and it responded. Um, what happened? What did it do that made you feel that, you know, we're getting somewhere here with the ABF? So an example would be when, when the Cabinet first said we want to put a restriction in relation to anybody who's been in or, in or travel through mainland China. That's a lot of people. Uh, we need to prevent them from coming to Australia. Uh, that was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. By 9 o'clock that night, my officers implemented that travel ban. They'd never done that before. There was no playbook, no rule book, no experience. Um, they had to literally sit down at the airport. So what did they do? They, well, they sat down at the airports and said, how are we going to do this? And we got on the phone to airlines. Um, and, and literally through several hours just made the job work. We didn't you know, ask people to come back with detailed designs or plans. They had to get on with it at the airports. And that showed to me straight away that, in fact, the work we'd done around agility, around command and control, all those things in the background that we'd been doing had actually paid dividends. But the, the main thing was they just rolled their sleeves up and, and, and stepped in. And in some areas doing things they were unfamiliar with doing. 
it wasn't all about just doing our immigration and customs role because we had to work with agriculture, we had to work with the airports and the airlines to make this thing work. Mm. And Reese, your organisation, you know, how has it responded and, and what have you noticed and what's made you proud of being... Yeah, so we, being police, we went into a very disciplined structure straight away early on in the piece and one was to support Michael's uh, and, and the ABF uh, is response in Christmas Island and, and repatriating the Australians. So we knew we had to play a support role. But also in the Northern Territory, we deployed over 100 police to those remote communities to protect those communities. So we started Operation Protect very early in the piece, and it's a force protection uh, posture, meaning our first commander's intent was to protect our people because you can't deliver a service if your people are sick or crook, you know. Uh, and then the second thing was around safeguarding the nation's interests. So that's whatever government we're going to task us with or how we could support other agencies. And then the other one was assisting with public safety, which was airports and other areas. So we we played a, we clearly defined those three things early on, put a commander in charge and said, deliver that so that we were able to be flexible, respond to whatever we needed to. But we also protected our force, which we did probably earlier than most and um, the NYPD actually have come to us recently to say, we want to see how you did it because, you know, sadly they've lost so many officers and, and they've went into their, not being critical of them, but they went into their probably posture a bit late and got caught. Uh, we, we sort of learnt from the rest of the world and we all leveraged off each other. So did you, you did have some sort of playbook there ready to go sort of step one, step two, step three. So there was something all yeah. organised and ready to go. Yeah, and, and look, we, we, had very, we have a very good chief medical officer, so we actually went beyond probably the government's uh, initial advice. We actually went stronger earlier because, um, you know, I realised in the leadership team that if, if we don't protect our own, we can't, we can't actually be of any benefit to the, to the community. So we were very strict early on in how we deployed and how we looked after our staff with, you know, whether it be PPE or, you know, hand sanitizer and all those sorts of things and, um, and very disciplined in our approach. And you had enough equipment and you had enough resources and you had enough process. We, we, to, we to did. We scrambled early and we got, we, we got ourselves a flight out of China early, I think, and that helped. And we also worked with Michael, with the ABF, who helped us out. So we, it was a team effort amongst, you know, home affairs plus, you know, um, with the state police. We, we actually distributed our own PPE across to the states, which they thought was really generous because they were quite concerned at one stage and um, and then we actually were able to get a shipment in um, in the middle of it all which was a, a great effort from the, from everyone so in terms of the roles that you play you know how quickly are you on the phone to Michael in terms of when this happened is it first phone call second we phone were talk- call? yeah we were talking a fair bit early on and um, my role was to support ABF uh, the AFP's role was to to help ABF out because he had a monumental task and we knew that this is going to be a real challenge for ABF and um, they did it remarkably well and uh, we just said, well, whatever we can do to help and that, that's how we operate. Monumental, big word. Was it like that? Yeah, I'd say in the first six weeks, David, it was um, six to 12 weeks. It was pretty full on. I mean, you can imagine week one, you know, close the border with China. Uh, week two, establish a quarantine facility on Christmas Island um, for the, you know, obviously the repatriation of Australians from Hubei province and we never built a, built a quarantine facility. We don't have the expertise, so we relied on creating a team with the AFP, with defence, with health, 
uh, Osmat teams, we brought all those people together really quickly. You know, we pushed teams forward onto Christmas Island, dealt with our contractor Serco there. You know, we had to sort that out really quickly to send that facility up, and we did it at remarkable speed. Same again, like a week later in Howard Springs in Northern Territory. Uh, these were things we hadn't done before. And whilst we're not the experts in, in building and running quarantine facilities, of course, we don't have any medical expertise, it was the coordination and the planning and the effort behind the scenes that we were leading. And without the, the help of Reese and without the help of Defence, you know, Angus and others, we wouldn't have been able to do it. It was very much a Team Australia effort. Mm. Now, there are so many great examples of things that um, went well and have worked well, but there was obviously the Ruby Princess where that coordination at some level obviously didn't work, decisions weren't made, and obviously uh, major impact, and happily, we have, you know, we had a, a very few number of those sort of occasions. Um, how hard is it to try to make sure that all of the pieces are working together because there are so many pieces that you've got to draw together, and, and how, in fact, do you do that? It's, it's a challenge, of course, and I won't go into Ruby Princess in too much detail because there's obviously a lot of legal and other proceedings on foot, but what I will say is this, that the border is a really complicated um, mechanism, and you can imagine you've got like 30 or 40 organisations in governments that work across the border, 200-plus pieces of regulation and law, uh, you have, you know, port authorities and cruise ship operators and cargo ship operators and industry representatives like, you know, Ports Australia and, you know, Shipping Australia. Um, then you have other, other stakeholders like the Export Council of Australia and the Business Council of Australia, um, stevedores, uh, pilots, people who work at the ports. And then you have, of course, the, the, the medical fraternity. Of course, you have the, the, the um, human biosecurity arrangements that work between the Department of Health, Agriculture and State and Territory Health. We have customs and immigrations functions. Then you have the state and federal uh, construct in Australia as well. So that gives you a sense of, mm. let alone what other countries Massive are doing. Complexity. And we connect to other countries. Yeah. And we have responsibilities at sea for safety of life at sea. So, um, so this is a, a very complex uh, system at the border. And so you're absolutely right. You, you know, the, the coordination, the collaboration, the cooperation, understanding everybody understanding their own roles and responsibilities and how they dovetail with those of others is critical to the, the effective functioning of the border. Rhys, um, we now look to have done a pretty good job around the health crisis, flattened the curve, but we know that this is a long way away from finished. You know, there's so much to come. Um, you know, the tap will be turned off in terms of JobKeeper and, and um, in, into the future. Um, you know, we're seeing increasing in funding for mental health and obviously funding for domestic violence, um, the pressures of growing unemployment. How are you preparing now for what is going to come? How are you getting ready to make sure that the AFP is ready for those pressures that are coming? Yeah, I think part of that has been to understand our environment and what's happening. So we've taken a wide lens to this across not just the whole country but the globe. So in particular, you know, I've, I've spoken to you know, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, I've spoken to the German Federal Police, I've spoken to Interpol, others, about how what are they seeing, what are they thinking the post-COVID environment's going to be like um, from a crime perspective, from us, from movement, you know, how do, we, uh, how do we adapt to the new environment? So for us, we've prepared our staff by being clear in our messaging, saying that things have changed. Uh, this I, From day one, we said this is the rest of the year. So we prepared the whole workforce to say, get ready, this is going to be the rest of the year. Uh, 
probably going to go beyond that because it's the rest of the world needs to heal. I think Australia will heal before anyone else and we are already seeing that. So it's about your messaging, making sure we're communicating, which we have been very on on uh, point on that. And whether that's the our chief medical officer or a deputy commissioner or myself, we all play a role in which message and what, what do we really want to say to our staff. So it's having that high level of communication, not too much, and also reassuring to say we're going to get through this and we'll be okay and remember what we're here what our mission is and our commander's intent. So we've kept our, what we'd say, our shape uh, very strong and and also our posture and we'll maintain that all the way through to the end of this year and then reassess at the end of the year where we're at. So we'll hold probably longer than, you know, some of the restrictions might start to ease. We'll probably still stay in our posture until we're happy that we've uh, we've got through this. It's interesting in your in your answer there. You you raised something that I hadn't even thought about, which is crime. Um, how does crime change? You know, well, it does. It'll adapt. So you'll have things like we know that in unemployment, crime lower levels of crime go up, whether that be house break-ins, um, you know, other property type crime or fraud. We've already seen that. We've seen an increase in the dark web because, of course, people are on their computers at home. So you'll see an increase in online fraud. Um, same techniques that they use, um, banking fraud, those sorts of things. We're seeing Commonwealth fraud of those schemes uh, occurring. And then sadly, we've seen a huge increase in child abuse images being shared across the dark web. Um, Drug purchasing, a lot of it will move to the dark web, firearms, the whole lot. So Michael's area will be flat out, like me, with the post and things coming through the border um, and, you know, also looking at, you know, how do you actually um, keep up to date with technology, including cryptocurrency? People are going to switch to that instead of cash. There'll be a whole range of different things that will start to change. So we're, we're, we're gearing up for that. Okay. And Michael, your organisation, one of the things you won't have to do is worry about people sort of coming and going out of the, the border so much, but how do you retool your organisation to perhaps support these other areas where there is going to be a need for for you to put resources? It's a really good question. Look, we, we, unfortunately, we, we still do have quite a lot of, um, unfortunately, well, fortunately, whichever you look at it, people coming through the border at the airports. Um, I was at Canberra Airport last Friday, a flight of 200 people that came in, and there were about 40 officials to deal with that flight, medical practitioners from ACT Health, Australian Border Force, Department of Agriculture, people from the airport. Uh, that's what the border looks like today. 40 people to do with 200 passengers. So we'll, we, people will still want to leave Australia and come back to Australia during this pandemic. And of course, we're providing exemptions for that. That's a new role for us. Um, you know, authorising people to leave and come to Australia individually based on, on certain grounds. Um, so there's a new roles and, and looking for PPE being, you know, exploitation, if you like, of, 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 our, of our community yep. by people trying to, you know, price hike PPE. So we're now searching export cargo for PPE and detaining it. As well, though, as Reese rightly said, unfortunately, we're still finding a lot of narcotics, tobacco and other illicit products, um, childlike sex dolls, all these, these, these heinous things in the mail. In, in air cargo in particular, there's been a massive hike in air cargo because people are sitting at home buying online. Um, and so, you know, we, we've really had to shift our resources from airports into our cargo operations right. mainly. But also, we're now reporting data on a lot of things we weren't reporting data on before. 
um, you know, right. about the PPE that's being exported right. and imported and detained, about the exemptions regime that we've put in place. So we've got an army of people now having to do new sorts of reporting for our organisation that we weren't doing before. So it, it's been a, a signal shift whilst uh, Reese has maintained the same sort of shape as an organisation. Mm. We've actually had to yeah. we've actually had to move our shape frequently through the last few months and we will continue to have to do that. So agility and flexibility and readiness is, is our mantra for the next six months going forward because we don't fully know what a, a new biosecure border is going to look like and we don't fully know quite how the arrangements with, say, New Zealand and the idea of a Tasman bubble is going to play out. So we're, being, we're readying ourselves for a lot of, lot of variables in the next few months. How are your people holding up? Pretty good. Look, I, I do these drop-in meetings with my people with small teams um, on Skype and those sorts of things to sort of catch up over the last few months and see how they're going. There's a great sense of pride. Uh, there's a sense that they made a big difference in, in delaying the onset of COVID-19 in our country and the work that we did in those first few months. And bear in mind, a lot of them were at the front line, wearing their PPE, engaging with hundreds of thousands of passengers. There's a bit of personal risk in that and trusting in the advice they were getting and around social distancing and how to wear the PPE and how to do their job. So they're, they're, they're immensely proud, I think, of the role they've been at play for our country, but working as a whole, a whole of Australia team effort with the AFP and others, I think it's, it's galvanised some of those relationships as well, I'd have to say. So they're, they're in a pretty good place, I think, proud of, proud of what they've done. Now, a, a feature of this program are the questions that we get from IPA's future leaders. And uh, Reese, we can start with one of your people. Karen Gruber asks, how has COVID-19 affected the AFP and the ABF's ability to liaise with international partners to combat transnational crime? I think uh, there's no doubt it's, it's posed a challenge for us. Uh, for example, we were due to hold you know, high-level meetings on certain things, uh, organised crime syndicates and, and the like, offshore. We, weren't able, we haven't been able to do that. It's probably highlighted for us that we haven't got the uh, secure systems, perhaps, that we, besides the five eyes, um, outside of the five eyes, right. it gets okay, quite complicated yeah. with the security level of security because the last thing you want is those conversations to be uh, compromised. So that's been a challenge for us. How do we do it differently? Um, I think there's, there's had to be a bit of a delay on some of those things. But on a good note, um, organised crime have the same issue. So um, we're actually probably facing the same, like that's our opponent, you know, um, and they have the same issue. They can't move. They've got to be careful with their comms and, and so on. So um, f for us, it's about an opportunity for us to refocus our efforts um, and have a good look now that the environment's sort of slowed down. They, they, they haven't stopped with their intent, which is to, you know, make profits out of this country and import drugs and, 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 the, and all sorts of things, whatever commodity they can make money out of. So for us, it's been an opportunity to really um, go to those international partners and say, look, we're going to have to delay the face-to-face -face and other, other meetings, but how could we actually do, you know, what are you seeing? How can we share more? So I've probably been on the phone a bit more to those international partners and we've got our offices one thing people don't know is that we, all of my officers stayed in situ, in country, voluntarily. I've got 128 out there, including in China. And uh, we're one of the only countries who've, who've sort of done that. And uh, that's been well received from all of those, our vulnerable countries that we, we deal with uh, in our region as well, is that all the troops, you know, made the, that stance to stay put and help fight the crime at the local level. 
So we've been able to do that as well. So that I've been really, um, it was quite amazing because we brought a lot of the families home and a lot of the officers stayed behind. So they've gone months now without their families um, and they've done really well. Michael, a question from one of your team from Michaela Geary, and she asks, the COVID-19 pandemic has arguably increased the demand from both the public uh, and the public service workforce on leaders to be more visible, to be more coordinated and to be more consistent. Has this impacted your traditional leadership and what tools are you using to meet this demand? Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt there's, there's been a shift because, of course, if you imagine what Reese just said in the international context, my organisation's a national organisation, international organisation. I can't visit uh, my people at, the, at the, you know, the workplaces the way I would like to, I'd like to do. So one of the things I'm doing is, is what I call drop-in sessions. These are Skype meetings with groups of 20 or 30 people at a time in certain work areas to have simply one-hour conversation about my reflections on the last few months and to talk about what they're doing, what they're experiencing. I have a daily coordination meeting with my senior executives um, so that we're, we're, we're coordinated at that level. Um, but even through the, the, the early parts of COVID-19, I recall one day trying to work from home and um, I had WhatsApp threads running like red hot. I had, you know, secure video conferences going. I had Skype video conferences going. I had mobile phone calls coming in. At one point, I was seven communications behind myself. I had to make <laughs> notes as I was going. And, and so there's a new way of working for me as well. Um, so we've all had to change and adapt. But I think that, you know, the way that we've represented ourselves in the media has been important because our, our, our employees in the border force watch what we say and do in the media as well. Um, internal communications has been really important, particularly around what Reese said, keeping our people safe. So they, they, they've got confidence in the advice they're getting that we're connected to the Department of Health and expert advice. So the advice we've been giving on the internet through video blogs, our, our Surgeon General has been out there doing video blogs to our staff about how they should wear masks and those sorts of things. So I think that using the, the online sort of communications has obviously taken over from the face-to-face. Okay, another question for you, this time from Rachel Martin at KPMG. And she asks, what lessons have been learnt through the COVID-19 period around collaboration with state-based agencies? How can we ensure we take these into the post-COVID-19 era to continue to enable a joined-up approach to both Australia's border specifically and national security more broadly? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. We touched on this a little bit earlier on about the, the border being a pretty complex system. And I think that I'd say that one of the first important things is that we all understand each other's roles, um, firstly. And there's been obviously through this last few few months, I'd say there's been examples of where that hasn't been clear to everybody about who plays what, what part and what role and where decision-making potentially hasn't been connected closely enough. So I think it's the collaboration and cooperation and the coordination sort of area that we need to focus, really focus in on. And at a time of a, of a pandemic, potentially more uh, holistic desktop type exercising rather than people just running in their functional sort of lines. The final point I'll make on this is engagement with the industry. Industry are really important at the border and we can't um, conduct these sorts of exercises and run these coordination uh, mechanisms without industry being completely connected in as well. A final question then to you, Reese, from Kylie Hiley from the Australian Public Service Commission. Great name. What are some of the challenges your leaders and teams have experienced in supporting your frontline workers in finding the balance between doing their job 
and meeting social distancing requirements? Yeah, I think uh, we obviously touched on the recruits and mm. the issues we had there, which was very disappointing for us. Um, overall, the staff have armed themselves with lots of information and we have trust with our chief medical officer. And going back to what Michael was saying with his Surgeon General, you know, we... Uh, we trust our chief medical officer, so we've listened to her. She's been out there spruiking to everyone and basically reassuring us and saying you need to follow these guidelines, and she's been very strong in her messaging. So that's that's helped us out a lot to unite the whole organisation, both nationally and internationally. She actually designed some action cards which some of the other police forces have taken on board, and so we actually... Very simple action cards, COVID-19, as to what to do in all the different scenarios, and that probably provided clarity for people, you know, and reassured, took away a bit of fear to say, okay, I know what to do if I hit this issue or I'm a member of my family is sick and so on. So we've only been able to, uh, well, we've not only, but three uh, people in our workforce uh, had COVID-19, but that was from overseas and none came into the workplace. So very disciplined from those three individuals as well, not to come into the workplace at all. Um, so we're pretty proud of that effort and, and that was early on in the piece and since then zero. So um, I think everyone's uh, worked really well together. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much um, for your time today and thank you for your service and the best of luck for the rest of what is not only going to be a very busy run into the year, but who knows what you are going to be faced with into the future. So thank you very much for joining us on Work With Purpose. Thank you. Thank you, David. And to the audience, thank you for coming back once again and for your ongoing support. It has certainly been truly inspiring, the response to this podcast from across the APS at all levels. And I I think the conversations and the quality of the conversations that we can have with our leadership just gives us great confidence and great pride, I've got to say, when you hear the stories that have been told today by both Reese and by Michael. So thanks also to our friends and colleagues at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission for their support in putting the program together. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out the GovComs podcast, type that name into your favourite podcast browser and it is sure to come up. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for this program, please pass it along. And if you're feeling particularly generous, a rating or a review of the program will help us to be discovered. But thanks again for your support and we will be back at the same time with another program. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 